Has anybody ever seen the show Dirty Jobs? I think most people would be familiar with it. If you haven't seen it, this guy named Mike, I think it's, is it Roe or Rao? Roe? So he does these difficult, strange, disgusting jobs with people who do them every day. Um, I'm just curious, is there anybody here that has ever had to, like, do a job or, you know, get paid at a place where you're just doing something that's that's rather gross and disgusting. Do we have anybody? Wow, multiple people. Kate's a nurse. I saw her raise her hand. I've seen Patty, and I've heard stories from Kristen, our neighbor, all nurses. All right, here we go. You didn't know I was going to talk about you, Kristen. Let me share this one with you. And praise God for nurses like her. We were uh, talking with her. And she said one time she had to clean maggots out of a person's wound. Yeah. Talk about a dirty job. Bob, what was your dirty job? I saw you raise your hand. <laughs> that sounds awesome. How, how do you eat your lunch? Like, can you even get it down? That's what I want to know. Yeah, so some dirty jobs. I, I can't think of any jobs where I got paid to do something really disgusting, but I do remember last year when I was working on our septic line, when that thing was coming up, you know, through the grass, and I was wearing gloves, but they kept ripping, and before you knew it, you just got, you were just in it, and it was just the way it was, and so I felt like Mike Rowe. I did. That's how much I love my family. So if they ever question, you know what's awesome? Another neighbor, not just Kristen, but Ralph, the guy who lives across the street from us. How old is Ralph, Mary? Do you know? 75. He was over there at our house in it with me, helping me. Now that is love, let me tell you. We have good people around us. We've got a nurse. We've got two nurses three nurses, and we got Ralph and Connie, and they're amazing. So the reason I ask is because we are talking about work in our sermon series. Between Sundays, we're talking about this portion of our week that we spend most of our waking hours doing, and I think the question is, can we find joy in our work? Can we find joy, even doing jobs that are difficult, challenging, stressful, the average person will spend 90,000 hours of their life working. It's crazy. 90,000 hours of their life working. And what's so sad is that so many people struggle to find joy in their work. Even Christians often struggle to find joy in their work. And I think one of the main culprits as to why even Christians struggle to find joy in their work is because they don't have a theology of work. They don't know what the Bible teaches about work. And they don't know how the gospel can transform how we work, how we view work, how we go about it. And so their faith is just something separate from the work. It doesn't intersect with it. 
And consequently, a lot of Christians are living kind of dual lives. You know, their spiritual lives are over here in this compartment, and their whole work world and life is over here. And so my whole goal through this sermon series is to give us a biblical perspective on work and, and so we can understand how our faith and work intersect and how our work lives are supposed to be just as spiritual as the rest of our lives. All life is meant to be spiritual. So here's what we've learned so far. We've covered a, quite a bit of territory. We've learned that we humans are created in God's image, and we were made to work because God is a worker. And one of the main ways that we reflect God, who is a worker, is by working. We were made in his image to reflect him through our work. Work is good. And our job description really consists of three things. We're supposed to fill the earth with flourishing human societies. We are supposed to subdue the earth, which means we are to develop and cultivate the earth's resources to produce God-honoring culture. And we are to rule the earth, which means we are to care for the earth. We are to steward it in a way that is healthy and God-honoring. Last Sunday was a doozy of a sermon, wasn't it? It was all about the depressing fact that sin is such a nasty, nasty disease that it affects every aspect of human life, including our work. And as a result of sin, work isn't working like it was meant to. Work is now full of toil. It's full of discouragement and frustration and challenge and difficulty. It was never meant to be that way. The research shows also what the Bible shows, that, that sin has really marred it. Uh, I was, you know, I, I've been giving you a lot of statistics, but I was just reading more about work and people's satisfaction in it. And Business Insider came across a report that they state 87% of Americans have no passion for their jobs. The Charter Management Institute it's a document that they released in January of 2016. And what they did is they explored a manager's well-being, uh, manager's well-being, their motivation, their productivity. And the ones that they studied, 57% of these managers they studied, which was, the study was a sample size of 1,574 managers. 57% of them reported experiencing insomnia in the prior three months due to work-related stress. According to the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, a quarter of Americans say work is their number one source of stress. A quarter of Americans, number one source of stress is their work. In fact, th there's this professor at Stanford named Jeffrey Pfeiffer, and he concluded after really studying this and doing a, a lot of research that workplace stress, things like long hours, a lack of health insurance, little autonomy on the job, high job demands is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States based on his research. Our Christian worldview tells us why work is not working. It's because of sin. But thankfully, our Christian worldview also tells us how it can begin to work again. That work is something 
that can be restored and redeemed. And so let me pray, and we are going to focus on the great good news that the gospel transforms our work and how exactly it does that. So let's pray. Father, we uh, want to be all and only for you in every aspect of our life. We don't want to have any aspect of our life that is withheld from you, including our work. Lord, you have made us in your image to reflect your glory into the world by working and partnering with you to fill, subdue, and uh, to, to, to cultivate the earth and develop its potential and to, to rule over it. Lord, I pray that as we consider the wonderful gospel message, the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ, that we will start to see more clearly how that precious, precious story has the power to change us as workers and to change how we view and approach our work. Speak to us, Lord. We need you, Holy Spirit, to enlighten us and to transform our minds and our hearts, to bring them in a line with your desires and your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, if we're going to talk about the gospel and how it transforms our work, I think first we have to be clear on what the gospel is, right? So just let me talk briefly about this. What is the gospel? Well, I think it's these two aspects that we have to hold together that really give us a, rebo uh, a, a, a robust understanding of what the gospel is. The gospel is both intensely personal and yet wonderfully global. The gospel is intensely personal and yet wonderfully global. Let's first look at the gospel is intensely personal. The Bible makes clear that part of the good news regarding, regarding Jesus Christ is that God's power through Jesus came into this world to rescue, redeem, and restore and heal individuals from the curse of sin and death and to adopt them into God's family. That's why Jesus, when he started his public ministry, he, he went around preaching, and we read this in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus was saying, look, God's redemptive plan, his, his restorative healing power, it's breaking into the world through me. This is great news for individuals. Turn from your life apart from me. Turn to me so that all that's wrong about you and broken can be healed and restored. Come, be adopted into God's family. Isn't this wonderful relief? If you did listen to the sermon last week, and how depressing it was, and to know that sin does even affect our work. What, what, a, what a message this is of hope, that God through Jesus brings, brings healing and restoration to individual sinners like you and me. As Jesus, as his ministry progressed, he was found saying in Mark ten forty five, 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. This intensely, this intensely personal aspect of the gospel, this is what the, led the New Testament writers to just cry out to people to turn from their sin of unbelief to belief in Jesus so that times of refreshing could come to them. Chase read about it. We'll read it again. Look at the Apostle Peter's preaching in Acts 3, 18 and 19. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The gospel is intensely personal. God loves you. He has died for you. He wants to redeem and heal you. He wants to spend eternity with you. He wants you to experience fullness of life forever. And perhaps the best way to sum up this intensely personal aspect of the gospel is by quoting Tim Keller's statement, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so I ask you this morning, are you in Christ? Have you connected to him through re repentance and faith? Have you experienced the refreshment that comes from knowing Jesus? The gospel is intensely personal, but it is also wonderfully global. Many Christians, they tend to focus on the personal, individual, private aspects of the gospel. And when we do this, when we frame the gospel in this way only, what we do is we lessen what Jesus has accomplished you see, the good news of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his return, it's the, the end goal of this is not a bunch of isolated individuals having a personal relationship with Jesus in some spiritual other world. It's not the end goal and result of the gospel. The end goal and the result of the gospel is the complete destruction of evil in this sin-cursed world. The, the complete destruction and removal of evil. So that this world that God made good may be renewed and so that it may be habit, inhabited with people that love Jesus, that love each other, and that work for his glory. That's the goal of the gospel. All things everywhere subjected to King Jesus. God all, you know, God in all in all. The earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdom of God. God's world restored to its original design and intent and even made better than before. This is the the global, all-encompassing, comprehensive, epic message that the gospel of Jesus Christ 
communicates. God will literally save the world. That's his plan. He's going to save the world. In Apostle, in Apostle Peter's preaching, we see not only the intensely personal aspect of the gospel, but check this out. Because right after he talks about the intensely personal nature of it, he talks about the wonderfully global nature of the gospel. Look at Acts 3, 18 through 21. Let me read the personal part, and then you'll see how it's followed up with the global reach of the gospel. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he thus he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying, look, God is going to reverse the curse. He's going to bring the world back to its original condition. He's going to make it uh, new again. Repent and believe. So that when he returns to destroy and remove the evil from the world, he doesn't have to destroy and remove you. Repent. Believe, be a part of the renewal of all things. Yeah, Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21, they're amazing. They're, they're two amazing chapters of what the renewed world is going to be like. And what's interesting about these chapters, there's many things. But one thing that I find extremely interesting is that both of them speak about the kings of the earth bringing what into the new Jerusalem, which will be the capital city of the renewed world. What are, what are they bringing in? They're bringing in the work products of their nation into the new Jerusalem. They're bringing the kings and men are coming into the new Jerusalem to bring the work of their nation to God. It's, it's amazing. In fact, the gates of the New Jerusalem, these chapters tell us, will be continually left open day and night so that men from all nations can go to and from the new city to bring the work products of their nations. And Isaiah tells us what some of these things will be. And this is interesting too, so check this out. Isaiah tells us that uh, the nations will bring animals. And then he says, too, that they'll bring the ships of Tarshish and objects of gold and silver, the pines, and then the pines, the cypress, and the box trees of Lebanon. Now, what's particularly interesting about these objects is that back in Isaiah 2, God condemns the ships of Tarshish. He condemns the, 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 the wood, the trees of Lebanon. But yet, we see them being a part of the renewed world. How is this? Revelation 21, 26, and 27 say this. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. So how 
are these objects that God condemns in Isaiah 2 entering into the capital city of the renewed world. These objects that were made by pagan nations, that were made for war, that were made for ungodly self-reliance. Don't you see that these works, the work of even pagan nations is going to be transformed and renewed? You see, this fire that is coming down from God at the end of history, it's, it's a purifying fire. It is going to just remove the dross, the evil off of everything. And whatever is sinful will fall off. And only the good and the pure will remain and become a part of the new world. The fruit of our work here on earth will be redeemed and will continue to work, and we will continue to work in the new world. It's amazing. But unlike in this world, our work's going to be empowered by God. It's going to be God-glorifying. It's going to be neighbor-loving. It's going to produce godly culture. So, let me tell you, that if that is the intensely personal and yet wonderfully global gospel, if that is the one true story of the world, how should that story shape and inform how you go about your work tomorrow? Let me tell you this. There are the main thing, and I'll do this briefly, the main thing that I'll focus on this morning, and I'll focus on a, a variety of other things of how the gospel should transform our work next Sunday to close the series. The gospel should transform your motives for work. And let me talk about four ways that the gospel should change and transform your motivations for what you do between Sundays. There are a lot of people in this world, right? And there are a lot of motivations that people have to work. One motivation, one prime motivation that motivates a lot of people is they are primarily motivated by economic security, right? They work for the monetary benefits. They work for, they work to put food on the table and a roof over their head and clothes on their back. Or they work for the health insurance that their job provides them. Or they work for the retirement uh, that, uh, savings that they're going to need when they retire. Others are primarily driven to work because they're searching for an identity. They're looking for status. They're looking for power. They're looking for achievement. They, in their minds, they think that if they accomplish enough in their jobs, if they climb the corporate ladder enough, if they have enough power and authority over others in their job, then they'll feel as if, all right, I am somebody. I have meaning in my life. I have an identity. I have self-worth. That's why there are a lot of young people who go after jobs like being a lawyer or a doctor or um, whatever, a financial investor or whatever, um, 
because what they're looking for, and they're not even fit for these jobs, but they're looking for status and they're looking for power. And so they go after these things that they're not a fit for, and then they end up miserable in their career five years into it when they realize this, right? Others work primarily to please others. They feel the pressure from their spouse to have a certain job. They feel pressure from their parents to have a, cer- a certain job. They feel all sorts of pressure to please their boss. They just want to please their boss. They just want to get a that a boy from their boss. And then, then they'll have worth. And yet others work primarily for the pleasures and comforts that their job affords them. Right? It, they're motivated by the nice car house, the nice vacations, the nice clothes. And I'm here to tell you that if any of these are your prime motivation for working, you're not going to be happy in your job. You're not. You are, it will suck the life out of you because very quickly your job will become an idol. It'll become this God where you're looking to find satisfaction, where you're looking to find significance, where you're looking to find security. You're going to be trying to get out of a job things that only God can give you. And it'll suck the life out of you. And so I'm here to say that these should not be your prime motivations. Is it okay to want to put food on the table? Yeah, And to have some economic security, yeah, but it can't be your prime motivation. So how does the gospel transform our motivations behind our work? First of all, it creates in us a heart that works to express gratitude to God. Why does this church exist? We exist here at Abundant Life to express our gratitude to Christ for what he's already done for us, and to invite others into a discipling relationship where they too can learn to live a lifestyle of gratitude to Christ. And we are to do this even in our work. You see, if you understand the personal aspect of the gospel, if you understand that God loves you so much, that he values you immensely no matter what you do or don't do in your work, if you understand that God's acceptance of you is based on what Christ has done in your place, if you understand that you are perfectly secure in his love, if you understand that you're a part of God's royal family and you're going to inherit the renewed world, if your identity is secure in Christ, your prime motivation is going to be, I'm going to work tomorrow morning because through my work, I want to express my gratitude to Christ. That's why I'm working. You'll understand that no matter what your job is, even if it's working on septic tanks for a living, you are doing far better than you deserve. That everything good in your life is a gift from God. It's not anything that you've earned or deserved. This knowledge can lead to a heart understanding that enables you to live with an attitude of gratitude, even in challenging work situations. Colossians, I don't have this up on the screen, but in Colossians 3, Uh, Paul, he's writing to slaves. 
I mean, if talk, I mean, talk about a job. You're a slave. Talk about a hard job. And even though Roman slavery wasn't like what we saw here in our country uh, not too long ago, it wasn't nearly as brutal, it still was slavery. And this is what Paul says to these slaves. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. What's that inheritance? The new world. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's what Paul says. To the slave. Secondly, the gospel will transform our motivation to work because we will work to reflect God's image into the world. Since As we've covered, the gospel story says that God created the world and he created good and he created work good. And it's the main way we reflect God's image in the world. Then we're going to want to go about doing our work because we understand just in doing our work ourselves, whether we share the gospel with somebody else or whether we, even the, the intrinsic value of what we're doing when we do our job, we're reflecting God's image. And that is something that pleases God because we are going about our life according to God's design. He designed us to work. And so whether we're a carpenter or a car salesman or a department store worker or a stay-at-home mom, God cares deeply about your work because you are reflecting his image when you do those things. Thirdly, We will work to love our neighbor. We'll have a motivation. The gospel motivates us to work to love our neighbor. And so God, he designed work not only for us to reflect his image and glory into the world. He designed work as the main vehicle by which we will love our neighbor. And this means that we will no longer see people as human resources. Think about that. Human resources. That sounds like a commodity that you can just, it's just a resource. Like we can use however we want to. No, we'll see the people that we work with and that who work for us and that we work for as people, not as a commodity to leverage for profit. We will see people not as resources, but as people. We'll, we'll, we'll see in each person the image of God in them. We'll see the people that we work with and work for as people that God loves so much that he was willing to die for them. We will see people love and that we come in contact with through our work as people that are there in our path to love and care for. And so if you're if we you know if you're a manager, you're gonna be looking to pay your employees well. You're going to look to increase their skills and what they do, even if their increased skill makes them more marketable for another job at another company. You're going to care about your workers' personal lives. You're going to want to know about it. You're going to want to show appreciation to them, even if it cuts into your profits. If we are looking to love our neighbor, we're going to treat our customers completely different. 
We'll make decisions that actually lead to decreased profits so that we can better care for and love our neighbors, our customers. We will look to create products that really benefit the common good and really help human flourishing. I, you've maybe you've seen this commercial, but I think this gets at a company that it's beyond just profit. Check this commercial out. It all started that one family night in Dumfries, Virginia. Family night is for everybody. It's a time for families to do crafts together. The kids just love going to Chick-fil-A for dinner. Being the single mom and getting everybody ready, it was tough. We would get there a little bit late, like on the tail end of it. Helen saw that I was having trouble getting them to Chick-fil-A for the family night on time and actually got it extended another hour. Noticing things like that, I never really told her how much she affected me, but she did. Love you. So much more about food. That's so much more about, you know, the bottom dollar. Fourthly and finally, work, the gospel will change and transform your motivation for work in this way. You'll desire to work to be a foretaste of God's promised future. If God is going to renew all things, and that includes our work, and if we are going to work in the redeemed world, then we need to think about how does that future reality shape and impact us in the here and now? How do I live out that future reality now? If God's kingdom were to come in my job as it is in heaven, come to earth, in my work, what would that look like? And then as we live that out, what's awesome is that we become a foretaste and a preview and a signpost that a new world is coming. That it won't always be the way it is. We will be displayers of hope. We will start to paint a picture for people of what the future is going to look like for those who are in Christ. And people just might start to ask, why do you work so differently than the rest of people? What's different about you? I worked at this job over here, and they were terrible to their employees. Why are you so good to them? Or why? Man, you're such a good customer service representative. Why? Why do you just care so well for your customers? You see, the gospel transforms our motivations behind our work. Work becomes about expressing gratitude to God, reflecting God's image and glory into the world, loving our neighbor, being a foretaste of God's promised future. And I believe that the more these become about how you approach your work, the more joy and fulfillment you'll find in whatever job you're in. I'm going to show you a, a guy by the name of Walter, a video of him that I think he embodies these things. But before I do, here's my challenge to you. Tomorrow morning, if you work days, before you go to work, I encourage you to review this list. And I also encourage you to ask God, God, empower me 
to do these things well today. And Lord, if there's somebody in particular that I need to love in a special way, would you please bring that person to my mind? And then here's what I also encourage you to do. When your work shift is done, and maybe it's on your drive home, maybe it's before you leave the office, I encourage you to think about these four things and to ask, how did I do today? Go before God. How did I do today? Check out this video of of Walter. Hey, your work is your ministry. Your work is your ministry. I still had the joy of business, but the world around me, I think, began to tell me that business was something less, and that if you were really serious uh, about your faith, then you would get involved in the church, and then you would get involved in ministry. We were really telling business guys, take the gospel to work with you, share the gospel with people, but still, how you did what you did, uh, it was um, it was a complete realm that was untouched by truth. My family's been developing property in Arizona since 1952, and so. I've watched cycle after cycle after cycle. Uh, This last cycle was unlike anything we've ever seen in Arizona. It was moving so fast that people were moving farther and farther and farther outside to where development uh, projects were happening 60 miles from the center of Phoenix. And then you felt as if you didn't move quickly, you were gonna get left out, and then everybody felt that way, and it got moving faster and faster faster until you had a process where people were being granted mortgages that had no ability to service those mortgages. In hindsight, looking back, there's so many places where you, you can look now and go, what were we thinking? Why did we do that? Why did we assume that that market event would continue forever unabated. For me, the, cr- the real estate crash brought me to a place of stepping back and evaluating. I could see where I lost sight of individual intrinsic value of work, of individuals, of community, that we were trying to service demand. Rather than asking is the demand uh, reasonable, we just serviced it. And now we had a chance to think about what we had done. I think now we look at our markets and say, where can we create real value in places that need value? Something that hasn't built the community and now it contributes to community. Something that uh, was employing no one where now there are jobs. So we've focused on urban infill 
properties where there's difficulty involved. We took a corner at 7th and McDowell that was uh, a number of buildings that were really decrepit. We preserved what was historic and, and really got to what was beautiful in those buildings, but brought in new purpose. Retail users were able to come and service an area that was way underserviced. But to do it in a way that when people arrive, they're struck by the fact that, they're, that this is a beautiful courtyard. The value that I think we've built, not only for our retailers and not only for our business, there's a value to the city. And all of that done at a profit to our company, which allows us to then go look to other properties and do the same things. I would say I worked many, many years in the marketplace without being free. And it would be my view that the massive amount of Christians that are in the marketplace find themselves in this place of hating and waiting. Not necessarily loving what they do, but hoping for a better outcome. The Bible says the very act of work, this process, is an honorable thing and it pleases God. Work declares the glory of God, just because it is. That's the challenge for the Christian in the marketplace. Uh, w one last comment, and then we're going to be taking communion. But uh, there, in this series, Redeeming Work, that I, that I came across this past week, they talk about how there have been a lot of businessmen that have only viewed their work, they've only viewed themselves as the back pocket of the church, meaning the, the whole reason why they work is just to make money so that they can give it to the church so the church can do the real work of God. And, and so, they've so they don't have a theology of work that says, no, your work matters. Your work is your ministry. It pleases God. So um, I just want to just really embed that in our hearts. Um, let me pray and we're going to be moving into communion here. Lord, we thank you for work. We thank you for designing us to be your co-laborers, to work alongside of you with, with our hand holding yours, filling and subduing and ruling in ways that produce God-honoring uh, products, God-honoring cultural goods, God-honoring culture, business, and educational institutions, and arts, and media, and just so many things. Lord, we thank you that because of what your son Jesus has done and what you have done through him, that this world in its broken state is not final that you're returning again in the kingdom that broke into this world, the kingdom of God that broke into this world, Jesus, at your coming, will be here finally and fully, that everything will declare your praises and work for your glory. We look forward to that renewed world. We look forward to it and satisfaction.
being once again just a, a tremendous source of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. And Lord, as we look forward to that future day, help us empowered by your Holy Spirit to live in ways that point to that promised future. Lord, we thank you for your shed blood that makes that possible. We understand that if you didn't go to the cross, there would be no way for our sins to be blotted out. So that times of refreshing and uh, restoration could come. We praise you, Jesus, as we take of the bread and of the cup, Lord. May we, with an attitude of gratitude, praise you in our hearts and minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.